as you continue to level up with your portfolio, the design has to reflect that because the consumer is so much smarter than they were years ago. And their expectations now are much higher. And if you don't keep up with it, your bookings will reflect that. Welcome to the second season of The Modern Hotelier, the fastest growing hospitality podcast. Both hosts were named top 100 most powerful people in hospitality and voted fourth most popular podcast by the International Hospitality Institute. Each episode, we'll get to know an industry expert and we'll discuss the latest trends in hospitality to help you, the modern hotelier. Welcome to the modern hotelier. I'm your host, David Malilli. I'm your co-host, Steve Karen, And I'm the producer, John Boomhofer. Today's episode is sponsored by Toledo Geller. Discover the epitome of exceptional design with Toledo Geller, an award-winning interior design build firm dedicated to crafting turnkey custom spaces. For the past two decades, Toledo Geller's creativity and attention to detail has earned them recognition in the design industry, cementing their position as masters of versatile design. Their approach begins with an intimate exploration of your aspirations, ensuring a deep understanding of your wishes and concerns. But what sets Toledo Geller apart is their mastery of both design and construction. From the blueprint stage to completion, Toledo Geller provides comprehensive project management and development oversight. Experience the flexibility that comes with this boutique firm's nimble approach that allows them to adapt swiftly to changing project requirements and timelines. Enjoy personalized attention throughout your journey with a dedicated point of contact overseeing your project from start to finish. Whether you're dreaming of a luxury living space or redefining your brand, Toledo Geller ensures a transformative journey that exceeds expectations. Toledo Geller has a special offer for the Modern Hotelier listeners, a chance to win a free design consultation. To enter, head to themodernhotelier.com slash offers. Click on Toledo Geller offer, fill out the form, and let them know the Modern Hotelier sent you. Steve, who do we have on the program today? Yeah, David, today we have on Virginia Toledo, creative director and founder of Toledo Geller. Toledo Geller was founded over a decade ago, and they have been declared House Beautiful's next wave and have been finalists in Innovation in Interior Design, Ones to Watch, and Rising Stars by industry magazines and associations. Welcome to the show, Virginia. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm happy to be here. Happy to have you, Virginia. So we're going to go through three sections. We're going to get to know you a little bit better, talk about your career, and then get into industry topics. Sound good? Let's do it. All right. So what was the worst job that you ever had? Oh, God. I'm throwing my my parents under the bus, but it was working for my father as um, probably at an age that was too young to be <laughs> working. They had a little like side hustle when I was growing up. And if anyone knows the 80s, there were these weird money pens. Long story. But anyway, we used to make money pens out of our yard, a shed in our yard. And it was the worst job ever. Are you a morning or a night person? Definitely morning. All right. So you have to delete all the apps on your phone except for three. What three apps are you keeping on your phone? That would be Pinterest, for sure, for all types of inspiration. Uh, Zillow or Trulia, totally obsessed with real estate. And Facebook, but for the marketplace part of it, because that is like my retail therapy. All right. What emoji do you use the most? Probably the thumbs up. Always delegating something and making sure that something's okay and handled. So thumbs ups all day. What's your favorite vacation spot? If you had one place you could go on vacation, where would you go? 
That's hard. I'd love to travel, but I would say Tulum left a really indelible mark for me. Yeah. So you have your own talk show. Who's the first guest that you have on? They can be living or deceased. Who's your first guest? Rita Moreno. I I would pay big money to meet that woman. So this is the last one. So if you had a time machine to go into the future or go into the past, which way are you going and which year are you going to? Gosh, I know it, it should be to the future, right? We should always be looking toward the future. But I have an obsession with the 1920s, like Gatsby era. Everything is so opulent. Like I want to be a rich person during that time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's just be clear of the person I want to be. I just want you to know, have beautiful gown on and, you know, uh, just everything gilded. Yeah, I would go there. I love that. I love that. That was great. So now we're going to move into the show where we learn a little bit more about you, what makes you tick, those types of things. So you grew up in Brooklyn, right? I did. I'm a Brooklyn girl. Awesome. So how did that shape who you are today? Oh my gosh. In in all ways, I would say. Um, so uh, growing up in Brooklyn in the 80s is very different than uh, growing up in Brooklyn today. <laughs> the gentrified, you know, really cool cafes on every corner kind of thing. So what I would say is that, you know, growing up in an area that was um, very sort of a depressed neighborhood, you know, after redlining and all that kind of stuff that happened uh, before I was born. And so I lived through those results totally inspired me to get into this industry of design, renovation, architecture. You know, I I feel really blessed that ever since I was a little kid walking through the neighborhood, when I would see abandoned buildings, I wouldn't see like a problem. I wouldn't see, you know, oh, that's so sad. Literally, I would start renovating it in my mind. Maybe too much because when my parents would get me upset, I had like plans of, well, I could just move into that abandoned <laughs> I, this is no joke. I had, I don't, you know, I just thought I could do it and I could fix it up and I, I'd live there. You know, I, that's where I'd run away too. you know, that whole era when, you know, you thought you could run away and live on your own at like 10. And so that totally informed my, my passion for it. And then also for sure, my father was a general contractor. So that certainly helped. And he worked in our neighborhood, you know, at that point it was all word of mouth. Uh, There was no website. So he was always uh, renovating these turn of the century row houses and brownstones. And that was so fascinating to me and certainly influenced, you know, or cemented, I should say what I wanted to do. So yeah, fortunately, I was one of those people that ever since I was a kid, I knew what I wanted to do, and it was a really linear path for me. And so you graduated from New York Institute of Technology and Interior Design. You kind of just touched on it, but was there, outside of the, you know, just your, your father and the abandoned houses, was there a moment that you kind of kind of remember when you knew that interior design was what you wanted to do for a living rather than just being a kid and thinking it would be cool to get out of the house if you had to? That's a great question. I think that, you know, during my time at university, I think that it was a very challenging program. And seeing that, you know, from our freshman year, we started, you know, with a certain class size. And by our second year, we were down to half. And by the end of the program, we were down to like a quarter. You know, most people felt like this is just isn't for me. This is really hard. And while it was really hard, I loved doing it. And I never felt as a student that missing out on a party or whatever I was missing out on because I needed to get a project done was something that I was upset about. It really, 
felt like something I enjoyed doing. It was super challenging, but I was also allowed to be super creative. And, you know, I loved going into studio. In fact, I just met up with one of my old professors last night from like 20 years ago, uh, but we've stayed, you stayed in contact all these years. And anywho, you know, going, you know, to a, what we would call a crit, a critique of your, you know, where you are in your project and you thinking like, yeah, this is totally awesome. I did a great job. And then them, they push you even further creatively, you know, creatively certainly um, was something that made me feel like, gosh, it doesn't feel like work. And if I could do this and get paid for it, that would be fantastic. Because up until that point, I wasn't raised to think that a creative field was something that you could really pursue and be profitable at for sure. You know, you, you had to be something that was stable, like, you know, a teacher or a doctor, you know, something that someone will always need, not a, what we could deem as a luxury service. That's awesome. And you mentioned this with one of the apps that you'd like to keep, Facebook Marketplace. You're a big fan of thrifting, right? Uh, you did one, your research, Steve. I you love know what? it. <laughs> I also heard that you say thrifting is your therapy. So I gotta ask, what's your favorite find while thrifting? Oh my gosh. So I typically look for furniture that I can uh, reupholster, refinish, give a new life. It makes me really sad to see the quality of furniture that gets put out in the industry these days. You know, it's it's a very like, almost like fast fashion where you, know, if you buy a $5 shirt and you're like, I wash it once, I'll throw it away. Who cares? You know, that has been the approach with furnishings for a long time. And it's, to me, it makes zero sense when I could actually go to a thrift store or consignment shop and buy a sofa that was really well made for a hundred bucks and reupholster it for a few more hundred bucks and get something that's super solid that I, you know, want to keep forever, as opposed to buying something that is going to continue to fill the landfill. So it is a hundred percent my retail therapy, uh, my husband is probably really blessed from that perspective. <laughs> I'm like, I don't need the Louis Vuitton or anything like that. Just drop me over the consignment shop. I'll, it, it, it's almost like a thrill when I leave with, you know, a lot of things for like a hundred bucks. I feel, it feels like a little like naughty. <laughs> like, how did I get away with this? It's a little weird, but. So what's your favorite thing you've ever found? Gosh, I have found, literally almost furnished my last house almost completely with these sort of finds. So there there are many, but I have to say it was probably this really cute sofa. At the time, it was on Facebook Marketplace in my town. And they said, if you pick it up today, it's free. So even better. And then I had it reupholstered in a yellow velvet uh, that just feels like super decadent. And, uh, you know, it's like one of those things that it's a showstopper. Unfortunately, now one of my dogs thinks it's his sofa. So, <laughs> but I can't argue with him. I did see that couch in one of the pictures and it is incredible. So <laughs> it, it, it's awesome. It is awesome. And it was free. I mean, yeah. get, originally it was free and I just had to recover it. The innards were in perfect condition. <laughs> That is awesome. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. So now we're going to go to more the career part of how you got to where you are. And, you know, like you said, you used to work along your father, who is a general contractor on construction sites. Then after college, you know, you just jumped into project design at Renovated Home. It seems like this has just been what you've meant to do your whole life. How did what you learned with your father and what you learned at kind of that first role out of college, how did those two things really kind of help you where you are today? Well, 
My father taught me for short work ethic. He wasn't that sort of general contractor. I'm not saying this because he's my dad, but he probably got to the job site too early, you know, where his clients were like, dude, I'm still having my coffee. And he's like, well, work's got to get done. You know, he showed up every day and worked his tail off. And if someone wasn't happy with something, he was going to get it right. So from that perspective, I still operate from that position. Even though I own the company, oftentimes I'm the one opening the office and closing the office, right? Like I want to make sure everything is buttoned up. I know we live in this hybrid work remote world, work remotely sort of world, but I think it's really important for my team to see me there hustling with them as opposed to just being this, you know, I don't know, figurehead of sorts. And then working at the renovated home exposed me to, gosh, a world that honestly I didn't even know existed. By that I mean I was a born and raised New Yorker and thought I knew the city, but I knew it from a different perspective than that sort of like 1%. Uh, population that the renovated homes clientele really consisted of. So here I am, someone who thought I knew, you know, New York inside and out. And now I'm working on, you know, penthouses and pied de on Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenue, you know, for many, many millions of dollars. I'm <laughs> like, I thought this was just in the movies. Like, this is for real? Oh my goodness, people live like this and this is not just their only place. They have many places. You know, it, it just wasn't, I, I had no idea. So I feel like I, I was like bamboozled, you know, because I, I knew the city. So that, you know, marrying my work ethic with then this clientele that was very demanding. You know, these are people that expect a high level of service, a high level of uh, construction design, et cetera, and are used to getting what they want. You know, it's, it's, it's a serve, even though we feel, you know, we're creatives and we're artists, we're really, we're, we're service providers at the end of the day. And so being able to understand that, you know, you have to service these people because they can sort of like end your career if they want to, while also staying creative and 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 keeping those juices flowing. So it's, you know, the business and the creative. And I think any, you know, architect, designer will attest to the same regardless of your clientele. But when you're working with people who have really deep pockets, it just, for some reason, just ups the ante. Mm-hmm. So instead of being rich in the twenties, you get to work for the rich. That's right. Uh huh. Yeah. That's that, that. That. Those are the cards I got. <laughs> that's fine. It's fine. All right. So you started your own company, Toledo Geller, in two thousand six, leaving the renovated home. When did you know that you wanted to do that? And was there just a a point? Or was was it a long process, or was it just one day where you're like, "Nope, I'm going to do it myself now"? <laughs> yeah. So. While I was at the renovated home, a a large part of my job description, and it evolved while I was there, but it evolved into something where I was primarily project managing. So what I was doing was managing the team on technical drawings, making sure all of our construction documents were in order, uh, managing our crew of contractors on various sites, making project site visits, uh, client management, et cetera. And so I was really missing the creative part of the industry and what drove a big part of why I wanted to be a part of this. And so, and if there was any, even rubbing a little bit of salt in the wound, a lot of our clients came to us at the time with their interior designer. So now I was also sort of like taking orders and creative direction from another designer. I'm like, oh, this just doesn't feel right. And I think I got to the point at about five years where 
having worked so closely with the owner of the company, we were a very small operation. Did a lot of work, but it was like small but mighty. I got to see the finances of how a business like this works and how you can be profitable and what your margins should be. I mean, it was, you know, a remarkable experience uh, from that standpoint. And so it gave me enough courage to figure out that I could, I could likely do this by myself, but also I think being young and naive helps, (laughs) you know, this was 17 years ago. I didn't have a family. Um, I know a lot of your guests say things like that, where, you know, there's points in your, your life where you can be more of a risk taker. And so that was that was my time, and and I took a leap of faith, and it was a good time in 06. It was I used to call it the gilded age, right, of the 2000s, and money was flowing, so it was a great time to you know hang your own shingle. But then two years later, that totally collapsed. <laughs> so uh, you know what that that work ethic that I referenced earlier certainly you know kicked into high gear and i had to figure out how to keep this company going at that point in time i had already taken on a business partner because i did get so busy in 06 and kind of fun fact this is kind of funny that you know how i love thrifting and i'm always on facebook marketplace and craigslist and ebay and all that. i found my my business partner on craigslist like this is a true story you know this is when craigslist was still you know, safe-ish. And so I had put out an ad that I needed someone to help me at the firm. And she was one of the people who replied and came in for an interview and long story short, hired her and eventually we became business partners. But uh, people cannot believe that, you know, we're close in age. So people assume we worked together, we studied together. And no, this was a Craigslist match that has lasted 17 years. (laughs) So, you know, for tech guys, I think, you know, like that... There you go. Did you have any applicants where you are like, nope? Oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. There, I mean, there weren't many good ones that came through. It, yeah, it was her yeah. and another woman that really came down to. Um, and then I had them do like a little face-off, like a, a test kind of project and judge the results from there and made my decision. I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, it is funny because I, I worked in New York for for 20 plus years and all our office furniture from when I had my startups were, was from Craigslist people who were getting rid of their Ikea furniture or whatever it was. Oh yeah. And I mean, there's especially, um, th- that's another, you know, tidbit for people who are listening, <laughs> depending on the market you're searching within. I mean, there's some really good markets. So you have people in Manhattan that are getting rid of amazing things. I mean, marble, uh, building material that are left, you know, over from project sites that are really valuable, but they're sitting at the bottom of a building and the superintendent is like, I need these things out of here. So take us through, well, I I, I know you're not going to say there's any normal days, but take us through a, a, a day in, in your life with your own company and how that operates. Yeah, I'd love to. So I think everyone at the company will attest to the fact that there are never two alike days at our firm. We have a, you know, a few different projects going on. If you usually have about 15 to 20 projects going on at any given time at various stages, right? So, you know, we're, we are a team of seven at this point. We've expanded, we've, you know, shrunk depending on what's, you know, happening, but a typical day is, you know, everyone is usually starting somewhere in disparate places. You have some people at the office, some people on project sites and that sort of thing. We have at least one or two presentations per week uh, for clients, you know, going over materials, drawings, that kind of thing. We try to do a lot in-house, meaning at our office. 
it, you know, from a standpoint of the ball is in our court and there's something to be said about coming to an establishment where you feel like, oh, this is why I'm, I'm paying a certain fee. <laughs> you know, this, they're running a well-oiled machine here and I see what I'm getting. And so, you know, there's collaborative time um, at the office at any given point of the day. So a lot of times we have our team huddles where we try to ideate together. There's weekly team meetings to go over where everyone is on their projects. What are, you know, things that are on fire? We are really um, schedule oriented. And so I pride myself on that because oftentimes we hear from clients who have had previous experience primarily within the residential space that it always feels like a runaway train. And it's like from a budget perspective, a timeline perspective, and the job doesn't get done. And as a small business owner, for me, the way I see it is if a job doesn't get done, then my business leads die with that with that client. I need to finish so successfully that they shout our business name from the mountaintops. You know, whenever their friends or family ask for a recommendation or when someone comes to visit, they're like, who did this? That's, you know, our lifeline. So it's really important for us to understand budget very, very much from the beginning. A lot of people don't like to share that number, but I like to tell clients, would you go out with a realtor and not give them your budget for a house? Right. You wouldn't waste your time that way. You can't, you're not going to get a mortgage for a house you can't afford, et cetera. So why would you sort of play coy with your architect or your designer and how much you are comfortable you're marking for this project so that I can march towards that and we can get this done. And, you know, finally, it's it's a lot of management on the construction. And so we are on the phone with our contractors all the time, making sure that they are being proactive, I like to say, um, in their scheduling, because a lot of times you'll just hear them say, yeah, it's good. Maybe two weeks. I'm like, no, we can get it done in two weeks if we if we plug all the right people into this calendar. Uh, you know, so I, I like to say, if you know you're kitchen cabinets are being installed in two weeks. Well, then have that template for your stone lined up two weeks plus one day, right? So instead of the day it's installed, calling the stone fabricator and they're like, oh, our next appointment is two weeks from now. And now we just lost two weeks. So it's it's simple, but we have found over the years that we need to be that involved in the project and overseeing that those schedules and appointments are being made. And oftentimes we're just doing it for them because it's important to me for the job to get done in a timely manner. I need to get paid and move on and go to my next project. So. Exactly. Exactly. Is there a specific niche that you work in? Yeah. So today our niche is working for families of high net worth, uh, individuals, uh, primarily, you know, a lot of times both individuals work, they're executives, they're just too busy to do this on their own. They know how they want their lives to be within their homes, but they have no time to dedicate it, uh, to dedicate to that. So that's where we, I think, are most successful is working for that demographic that understand the value we bring to the table from a design perspective, but also from a construction management. So oftentimes we get hired for second homes uh, because people know that we can handle it even if they can't oversee the project, you know, whether we're flying there on a, you know, biweekly basis, traveling, driving there on a biweekly basis, just to make sure that those milestones are met. FaceTime and, you know, Zoom obviously have been transformative in managing projects from afar, but that's where we succeed. We don't do well with the people, you know, be fully transparent, the people who want to control a lot of the process it doesn't, doesn't work. It's almost like too many cooks in the kitchen for us at that point. We're super collaborative, but they have to understand where 
the jurisdictions lie so that we can get the job done efficiently. Are there any upcoming niches that you're looking to focus on in? Yes, for sure. And so part of why uh, I, or part of how I met you all was the fact that in 2023, we made a really strong effort to jump with both feet into the hospitality design sector. And so to backtrack, when I was an undergrad, I thought that that's the path my career would take. I was solely focused on hospitality design. In fact, my thesis was a boutique hotel in uh, Brooklyn. And at that time, there were zero (laughs) boutique hotels in Brooklyn. So I missed that train. Um, There was just the Marriott at that point. And I, you know, had this like, you know, grand idea but I was a kid. And so I actually had a stint at a hospitality design firm soon after I graduated before transitioning into the renovated home. But unfortunately, that was a time where it was very soon after 9-11 and that sector was sort of, you know, it was at almost like a standstill. People just didn't know what to do. Do we travel? You know, we were sort of mourning as as a country. But what I found was that the residential division was still hot and I had student loans to pay. So (laughs) I went there. But now after 17 years of owning Toledo Geller and we've built something that's really strong and uh, reputable, it's time for us to turn our attention to what was my first love. And so we've made so many great connections. And right now what we're working on is a motel revitalization by the Jersey Shore, reimagining a a, sort of a staple in in the area. And we are giving it a whole new, actually a character. (laughs) We're almost assigning a character to this space. And we're having a lot of fun with the research in terms of understanding who the client is, where there are opportunities for this motel to monetize. I I think we've identified many places where they could be making uh, a bit more money, but also how they can cater to their guests a little bit more. And so I think for us, the focus has been motel revitalization because I have a, a passion for providing I think more so traveling families, the ability to stay in accommodations that feel thoughtful at a fair price point. And I think that's certainly lacking if, you know, we look at the motel landscape today and they're, they're ripe for renovation. I mean, so many of them um, in terms of when they were first developed to now, this is the, the, the normal time to start reinventing and renovating. And I'd really just love to be a part of that revitalization. Awesome. That is great. So now we're going to move to the part of the show where we get your industry thoughts kind of in that hospitality space. So kind of a great segue here. You know, you're helping out with the hotel in New Jersey. If a hotel is looking, you know, to choose an interior designer, what things should they be looking for? So I think first and foremost, as designers, we have to be nimble and flexible. That is something that I think has been part of our success as a firm, we hear, and I say that not just assuming, we've we've heard from clients saying, you know, they interviewed other firms and they almost felt like they couldn't work with them. I, I think our clients need to be heard, whether, you know, it's a residential client or an independent hotel owner who has strong ideas of who they're servicing and where they want their the brand they're developing to, to end up. And so while we have our design ideas, we have to be flexible with what the client wants 
timelines and budget. So I think, you know, when you're interviewing someone, I think you can tell really early on if they operate that way or if it's like my way or the highway kind of thing. Because, you know, I'm not going to lie in this industry, there is a lot of ego. And and that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's where some really strong designs come from because you have such uh, strong convictions as to what, what or how you feel this should develop. But I think flexibility is key. In terms of size of a firm, I think that maybe it's because I've always worked at boutique-sized firms and never thought that's where I'd end up also. It's just weird the way life is, right? I always thought I'd be like one of the big powerhouse firms. I love that at a small design firm, everyone knows what's going on on all projects. It's, it's right. It's, like, it's so cool in that if a client rings the office, even if that designer isn't you know, on that design team for that project. Oh, Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so or whomever, you know, restaurant. I, I I know what's, I, I, I kind of know what's going on with your project. Give me a second. I can help out. And we are really all so collaborative in, you know, troubleshooting, ideating, and you get a lot, I think more bang for your buck when hiring a smaller operation. There is a lot less bureaucracy in terms of paperwork and, you know, all of that it's a lot more intimate. And so I think for smaller brands, especially smaller hotel brands, it feels like a more organic fit perhaps to work with another boutique. We, we understand each other, right? We, we understand that entrepreneurial spirit because we've had to figure it out for ourselves. And so I love to be able to share that with other businesses that are trying to develop their brand, you know, with, with sustainability and longevity. That's great. That's great. So from a design perspective, how are you able to enhance the guest experience and and make it memorable for guests? Gosh, so this is something we've been thinking about a lot as a team this year and trying to really understand how we can transfer our skill set from residential design to hospitality design. And when we really start to dive deep and figure out what do we do for for the bulk of our clients in the residential space that feels super curated and personal. It's that we do such a deep dive in the design phase to understand everything that makes them tick, how their families work or how they operate as a couple. And in fact, we make each partner in the relationship fill out these, these questionnaires. Usually the males do it begrudgingly, um, (laughs) (laughs) but then they are really appreciative of it at the end, because it, it's down to everything. Like, what does your day look like? Do you get up and, you know, scroll online first? You know, do you have a cup of coffee? How do you, how do you wind down at night? We want to understand all of these things so that from the functional aspect, we check all of those boxes and it is precisely, you know, basically your home is precisely done for you, right? I want to know where you kick your shoes off at the end of the day, you know, all of that. And so transferring those skills to the hospitality space, you know, I've thought of ways of, you know, for, I, I don't know, you know, I don't prove to be an expert at this at all. This is part of, you know, why we're having this conversation. But I think that there are opportunities for smaller brands or, you know, I don't think you can pull this off at a 500, you know, door sort of hotel. But on the motel side, I think there is opportunity to customize a, a client's experience. I could think of, you know, you guys talk about tech so much, which gets me really excited. and 
so much of what we do is via apps. You know, we've all stayed at hotels where at some point they're checking in on you. How is your stay? What have you? You know, I thought of digital photography, uh, digital photo frames in a room, perhaps that as a sort of a surprise, maybe it's the mom booking that vacation for her family and they're going to you know, stop at this roadside motel and I can upload some photos of our pups, our kids, what have you. And when we go in, it's like, wait a minute, how do they know us here? You know, design is all about its sight, its scent, its touch. You know, are, is there a way where at this establishment, we can ask you before your stay, we have three, let's say hypothetically, three scents that we can offer you. Do you like floors? Do you like crisp? Do you like musk or a masculine sense? Can we have that in the room for you? I know we've done this when we've done multifamily buildings where we have units A and units B. We did a project where all the kitchens were dark in like 25% of the apartments and they were bright and white cabinetry and 75%. Is there a way where we can choose even our bed sheet? You know, do you like white sheets? Do you like dark gray sheets? We don't have to give them 10 options, but I think there's something really cool about when you get there, you're like, this was chosen for me. You know, like I chose that. They're gray because I asked for that. And those are, they may seem silly and, and trivial, but those are the things that make you feel like you're getting a really personalized experience. And you can't get that from a really big brand. They just can't operate that, I should say, um, granularly, I guess. But I think that the independent space has a big opportunity to provide personalized experiences. That's great. And so as far as trends, one of the trends I've seen a lot maybe over the last 10 years is, you know, a lot of independent hotels trying to create this common space or the, where the lobby's more where you can come and work and things of that nature. Are there other industries that you and your team are pulling from to get inspiration for hospitality? Is there any other sectors that you look at to say, wow, we could take this and incorporate it into hospitality? Yeah, I think that the food and beverage for sure. I think, you know, the communal dining has become really popular. We did a project at a bed and breakfast that used to have a, a dining space where people were sort of everyone sat alone or you just, it was a grab and go. And once we put in a communal dining table, it transformed the way people experience that space. All of a sudden the person who was traveling alone didn't feel quite alone. It offers an opportunity to communicate, connect, all of that. I love hearing stories about when people make new friends when they traveled. I think that's so wild because as adults, it's sort of, it's difficult to make friends, you know? And so when you can make friends during, you know, a time that you were experiencing, you know, something totally different and you, you guys align on that and maybe travel together in the future, I think thinking about, you know, dining is a big part of it because, you know, that old sort of adage, breaking bread with someone, it, it means something, you know, that's what hospitality is. I like to think of when I host people at our home, I'm going to make sure that whether I cook the dinner or I brought it in, it's going to be something that I know they're going to enjoy. And so dining and, you know, eating together is a big part of that. In terms of other industries, I think communal workspace, we even worked, uh, our personal offices were, we started at, at WeWork at their first building, which was really cool and learned a lot from that experience and what that sharing of ideas, because that's, that I think was really what 
made them such a strong company. We met so many other startups and small business owners there. And, you know, you could tell if someone was having a bad day because our walls were all glass and we had that time to connect like, Hey bud, I heard you on that, on that phone call. You seem really upset. Come over here. Let's have a coffee together. So, you know, from the shared workspace and food and beverage, I think we can take a lot of those concepts and bring them into hospitality because you have the business traveler that, that needs both of those services. And I think families traveling together would also benefit from that instead of feeling so isolated in their room. I think we need to get people out of their hotel rooms more than ever. As a uh, mom to a student athlete, we do a lot of travel for tournaments and things like that. And I really despise that downtime where we're just sitting in a hotel room, you know, at a place that's usually less than desirable. (laughs) Because <laughs> that's what's chosen for us, and, and you know, I'm always looking for ways to to commune with people. You know, so I think there's there's a larger opportunity for those gathering spaces that you're referencing. That's great. And so, obviously, you know, the world's changed. There's a lot of different options now, whether it be hotels, motels, B and B, Airbnb, short term rentals. What do you think, as a designer? What do you think those who have the short term rental space, those owners, what should they be doing? Maybe three tips you could give them to really, you know, make that a much more enjoyable stay for that person who's staying in a short-term rental. Right. I and and that is that fascinates me that whole industry and where it is going, uh, where it has come from, where it is going. There's so many conversations surrounding that. We've even had a lot of our residential clients now getting into that and their portfolios growing and bringing us in to help them with that. So, it is a very saturated market. I remember the days when you'd go book and try to book a place and it was slim pickings and now there are so many options. So how do you make your space stand out? One tip I would give people with short-term rentals is have at least one room that feels really different. So for instance, if I could give an example, we just did a a house for a client where it's in a beach area. It's not beachfront, but in a beach area. And so sure, you have your open area beach vibe. We've all seen it. Great. Fantastic. But then there was one room that was north facing. It was kind of dark. It had no good views. And so we just leaned into that and made it a really dark and moody, like library den kind of thing that photographed so well. And that's the room, ironically, that they get a lot of feedback from. Because when someone is traveling and they might just want to get away from the rest of the family or whatever and want a little bit of a different experience, this room stood out in the photography in a sea of very bright, airy photographs otherwise. So this felt really interesting. I think it's, you know, this should probably go without saying, but having your house stocked with the proper things. I think that's one of the biggest gripes you hear. And I know it's, again, might sound super obvious, but I've even dealt with that where you're paying a certain amount per se, because I loved the photos. And now some of my basic necessities aren't included in here and I can't even cook a proper meal. Uh, So, uh, you know, some of the obvious things have to be checked off. And I think when we grow, I'm guilty of it in a different way of growing a business. Sometimes we forget those little details that were important and we, we, we fussed over at the beginning and when we get bigger, we're like, oh crap, I kind of forgot about that. So that's another. And third, I think, you know, you have to keep up with, with what people want. And by that, I mean, we also see photos of short-term vacation rentals that just feel super outdated. And why would I want to stay there? So you have to make the commitment to 
have a well-designed space. And now, you know, the interior design market has people at various levels. You know, if, if you're a little bit newer, your portfolio is smaller and you have to start with someone that's a little bit more green, start there with a designer that's green and needs that, you know, needs some work in their portfolio. That's going to, that service that they're going to give you in crafting a space that feels more thoughtful than you would have done on your own, it's going to pay itself in spades. Like just do it. And I think that as you continue to level up with your portfolio and how much you're asking for and the type of, the types of properties that you're purchasing, the design has to reflect that because the consumer is so much smarter than they were years ago and their expectations now are much higher. And if you don't keep up with it, your bookings will reflect that. They have other options. So I think, you know, you have to fold design services into your marketing efforts and your spe- your expenditures for the year and not think that it's something that, you know, it, it's a nice to have. It's, it's really a must have, you know, at this point. Absolutely. And you kind of went into it already. But I'd love to you, for you to elaborate a little bit more. What advice would you give to you know folks that are looking to get into interior designing as a profession? I think it's super important for you to get the proper education before getting into this industry. It probably isn't the popular opinion because you technically can become an interior designer without getting a degree. However, there is a lot of liability in what we do you know, for specifying, you know, partitions and deciding where plumbing goes, et cetera, electrical plans that we work up, all of these things. If you don't know what you're doing, you could really get yourself into a legal mess. And so I think that social media, the HGTVs of the world have painted this picture that uh, just go for it and get into it and you can do it. And I'm not saying that you can't, but it's going to be a lot harder of a road. So I am a big proponent for really understanding the foundational skills, the technical skills, software, AutoCAD, Revit, all these different things that we use in order to produce our construction documents. I think that's super important. And two, get experience working under someone else. You know, I I love an entrepreneurial spirit. I get it. I am that person, but it's not for everybody. And I'm not trying to say that to be, um, you know, sort of downtrodden on it or whatever. But I think that it is invaluable experience. T- let them take the risk for a few years <laughs> before before you do it, and really get a sense of the ins and outs, the flow. You know, watch that owner and how they have to manage a team because that's a whole other thing. You know, once you become a business owner, you're no longer just a creative. We all know that, right? But sometimes people think, I like doing it, but once you own a business and that's what's putting food on your table, it's a whole different animal. You know, when you're paying health insurance and you're also the reason why other people can pay their mortgage and put food on the table, this is another game. So I would say for sure, you know, cut your teeth, so to speak, at another firm and and also try different firms, right? Because sometimes it might not be the sector that you want to go into. You might think you like office design and commercial design and end up in, you know, hospitality, restaurant design or residential. So get a feel for it and, and, you know, give yourself that space and time to do that before branching out on your own. I think schooling and and that experience will, will go far for you. Awesome. So John has been listening throughout this whole episode. So I'm going to kick it over to John for the final question here. One thing you mentioned at the very beginning was the kind of 
equivalent to fast fashion in design and furniture and stuff. And I've worked at hotels and in also a really nice country club. And it was very clear to me, like the quality, you know, if something break in the hotel, we just like, uh, is it worth it to fix it? No, we'd throw it out. And the country club is like, this stuff has been here forever. It feels like, and it wears really nicely and it feels great. What are some things to look for? Like when furnishing to make sure that the stuff you get last, the salad looks good over a long period of time, whether that's like the brands or materials or finding secondhand stuff and refurbishing. What are your thoughts there? I think that when you are looking at these pieces, if it let's say if it's a case good, a piece of millwork, what have you, you check out the sturdiness of of the frame. You want to look for solid wood as much as possible, and you know not particle board and those sorts of things that turn to tend to warp and chip and what have you. Check out drawer boxes. So if it has drawers in it, open the drawers, see the construction of the drawers. Are they stable together? Because if they are, don't buy it. Are they dovetailed? Fantastic. But those are the things that will become costly when you go to refurbish them and then might sort of negate the good price you got at the beginning. You also want to look on wood pieces to see if, especially the top surface, is it a veneer or is it solid wood? Because if it's a veneer and it has some damage, they not, it might not be able to sand that down at that point. It might just be too thin and now we need a whole new top on it. And then for upholstery, I would say, you know, check out the cushions, make sure that the innards are good because that's also when the uh, cost to reupholster it really gets pricey and again, might negate the savings that you got at the beginning. So you want to look for um, springs inside the cushion. You can feel them if you test it out as opposed to just being foam. And the frame of the uh, of the furniture piece as well should feel solid. And so you'll know that just by sort of giving it a good shake if it feels sturdy. That would usually represent solid wood that was... Uh, attached in a more sound way as opposed to just being glued together. Usually you want glue and nails. So, you know, those are a a few tips in knowing if you've gotten a good deal or not. But either way, I think it's always best to go this way as opposed to buying new and, you know, things that are just going to continue to pile up in the landfill. Well, thank you so much, Virginia. That does it for another episode of The Modern Hotelier. This is the point where we let you plug away. How can people get in touch with you, get in touch with your firm? Uh, so plug away. Absolutely. I welcome all inquiries. I, I love LinkedIn. And so I love networking with other uh, business owners. You can feel free to email me directly at virginia at toledogeller.com. And you can find us on all social media platforms at Toledo Geller. That does it for another episode of The Modern Hotelier. It's that time of year. So happy holidays to everyone. And we look forward to seeing everyone soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today's episode is sponsored by Toledo Geller. Discover the epitome of exceptional design with Toledo Geller, an award-winning interior design build firm dedicated to crafting turnkey custom spaces. For the past two decades, Toledo Geller's creativity and attention to detail has earned them recognition in the design industry, cementing their position as masters of versatile design. Their approach begins with an intimate exploration of your aspirations, ensuring a deep understanding of your wishes and concerns. But what sets Toledo Geller apart is their mastery of both design and construction. From the blueprint stage to completion, Toledo Geller provides comprehensive project management and development oversight. Experience the flexibility that comes with this boutique firm's nimble approach that allows them to adapt swiftly to changing project requirements and timelines. 
Enjoy personalized attention throughout your journey with a dedicated point of contact overseeing your project from start to finish. Whether you're dreaming of a luxury living space or redefining your brand, Toledo Geller ensures a transformative journey that exceeds expectations. Toledo Geller has a special offer for the Modern Hotelier listeners, a chance to win a free design consultation. To enter, head to themodernhotelier.com slash offers. Click on Toledo Geller offer, fill out the form, and let them know the Modern Hotelier sent you. You made it to the end of The Modern Hotelier. Thanks for listening. The Modern Hotelier is produced by Make More Media. Make sure to like and subscribe if you're watching on YouTube or follow wherever you get your podcasts. If you know of a guest or sponsor that would be a good fit, feel free to email us at hello at themodernhotelier.com. Thanks and have a great day.